Thanks for joining us on this week's episode where we watch and discuss the Best Picture nominees from the 48th Academy Awards. I'm Maddie. And I'm Kelsey. Let's find out if the Oscars got it wrong. So the 48th Academy Awards, by no doing of our own, through completely random happenstance, we find ourselves one year adjacent to our first episode. Yeah. We are in 1975. The randomness is not an even spread by any means. We've done three years in the 80s. This is our second year in the 70s. And they're right next to each other. True randomness does not feel random. No. But anyway, here we are in 1975. Let's get people situated to the year. It's not too dissimilar if you remember our 1976 conversation. Throughout this year, Watergate convictions are still rolling in. We're dealing with the aftermath of Watergate. Mm-hmm. The Vietnam War officially ends this year. So that's good, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to feel anything positive about the Vietnam War, but it ending is the best thing about it. In Interesting news, Jimmy Hoffa goes missing this year. Yeah. Still unaccounted for. So if anyone uh, knows where he is. (laughs) Exactly. He's been missing for a while. (laughs) We've got some big television premieres at Mm -hmm. this point. Things that for, again, us, staples our entire lives. Don't Clearly don't remember a time before Wheel of Fortune, which premieres this year. Everyone loves the wheel. You a wheel watcher? Oh, yeah. And the first Saturday Night Live also airs this year. Also an institution. I mean, we didn't write any of this down, but I do feel compelled to mention what was happening on the music scene this year. Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run comes out. We've got Queen releasing Bohemian Rhapsody. We've got Elton John premiering an album that I think they said was like the first British album to premiere at number one in the States. I mean, we also didn't write this down, but it was also a big year for theme parks. (laughs) That's true. What did we say? Bush Gardens this year? Bush Gardens in Williamsburg and Space Mountain. Space Mountain opened this year. Oh, yeah. Year. Space Mountain opened this year. Come on, people. Yeah. A lot of exciting stuff happening in 1975. Not politically or... or Not politically. In- Less fun stuff was happening politically, which I think contributed to the more fun stuff mm-hmm. happening. Not politically. Right. We all need a distraction. And exactly. Space Mountain is a great distraction. That's, a, that's quite a concept. You're definitely not thinking about Watergate on Space Mountain. I never have been. (laughs) Okay, so that gives you your bearings in 1975. Let us do our traditional run through of what the nominees are, what they're all about. I will start with Barry Lyndon, an 18th century period drama about the rise and fall of an Irish opportunist who marries a rich widow for wealth and title. Starring Ryan O'Neill and Marissa Berenson, it was directed and written by Stanley Kubrick. Nominated for seven Academy Awards, and it won four for Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, Best Cinematography, and Best Scoring, Original Song Score, and Adaptation, or Scoring Adaptation. Make of that what you will. I tried to parse it into Best Original Score, but then another one of these movies won Best Original Score. Yeah, that's an interesting category. You know, as we've found throughout this whole process, the categories actually change quite a bit. Mm -hmm. That feels transitional. Anyway, the next movie was Dog Day Afternoon, a biographical crime drama based on a real-life robbery and hostage situation at a Chase Manhattan bank in Brooklyn. Stars Al Pacino, John Cazale, and Charles Durning. It's directed by Sidney Lumet. 
written by Frank Pearson. It was nominated for six and it won one. Best Original Screenplay, Frank Pearson. Next is Jaws, a thriller about a great white shark menacing a New England seaside community in the days leading up to July 4th. It stars Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, and Robert Shaw. Directed by Steven Spielberg, written by Peter Benchley and Carl Gottlieb. It was nominated for four and it won three. Best Film Editing, Best Original Dramatic Score, and Best Sound. Next up is Nashville, a satirical musical ensemble comedy drama film set in the Nashville music industry. It stars everyone. Huge ensemble cast, but that includes Lily Tomlin, Ned Beatty, Ronnie Blakely, and Keith Carradine. Directed by Robert Altman, written by Joan Tewksbury, nominated for five and won one Best Original Song. And last but not least, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a drama about a prisoner who gets himself transferred to a mental institution to avoid hard labor. It stars Jack Nicholson, Louise Fletcher, and Brad Dorif. Directed by Milos Forman, written by Lawrence Haubin and Bo Goldman. It was nominated for nine Academy Awards and it won five. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Adapted, Best Actor for Jack Nicholson, and Best Actress for Louise Fletcher. The Big Five. Big Five. So we also like to talk about what made money at the box office this year. Our top five highest grossing movies of the year. If you know anything about film history, number one will not surprise you. It was Joss. Yes. Followed by One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Then, and this is clearly over time, not within the year, the Rocky Horror Picture Show comes in number three, then Shampoo, and then Dog Day Afternoon. And then we like to talk about anything particularly notable in film history, tech innovation, anything weird going on with the filmmaking, notable awards, performances. And what really feels like worth mentioning this year is not only was Jaws the highest grossing movie of the year, it sort of invented the concept of the summer blockbuster. (laughs) This was a thing people didn't always do beforehand where you release a big popular movie in the summer open it in a bunch of theaters. At the time, it was like 450 Mm -hmm. theaters. Now, summer blockbusters will open in thousands of screens across the country. You'll be familiar now because this is where most movie studios make most of their money. Yes. Yeah. Joss. So again, what one is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. We couldn't find a ton about general consensus at the time. It was not a controversial pick, but it feels from what we saw that people were not super sure what was going to win. A lot of these movies could have been considered... It was a competitive year. Yeah. And so when it won, I don't think people were stunned. And then there's not been any sort of reconsidering of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nests in years since. It hasn't entered onto the worst winners lists or anything like that. No, still a, a very respected film. Indeed. So, are you mad about it having one? You personally? No, I'm not. Are you mad about it having one? I'm not either. But we have to talk about that for all of them. So, mm-hmm. would we have been mad about the other ones winning? Would you have been mad about Barry Lyndon? Would I have been mad about Barry Lyndon? Yes. Samezies. How about Dog Day Afternoon? No. Same. Jaws? No. And, or same. <laughs> Sorry. I felt like that went without saying. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and Nashville. Yes. I was more torn about this, but I think I'm going to go with no. All right, cool. Yeah. Disagreement. Good times. But I don't think we're going to get in a fight about it or anything. So first we will discuss the double yeses. So for this case, it is only Barry Lyndon. So first, I guess let's give the the description of what it is. The movie is in two acts because it's like a million hours long and should not be. And so before the intermission, you get the first act that's about the rise of Barry Lyndon. And then the second act is about the fall of Barry Lyndon. So it's just about this Irish guy and he's in love with his cousin and she's poor and is trying to marry a rich guy. And he's really 
pissed about it. And so he challenges the guy she wants to marry to a duel. And the family basically fakes it so that he thinks he has killed the guy in a duel and needs to flee town to avoid the law. So he sets out on his path to Dublin to make something of himself. And he ends up like getting robbed and he joins the army and he doesn't like being in the army. So he abandons the army. But then the Prussians find him and then they make him join their army. And then he finds like gambling friend who will take him around. And the two of them are going to gamble and, and meet rich people and take their money and also somehow become rich people by meeting the rich people. Mm-hmm. And so he finds a rich woman. Her husband dies. He marries her. And then that's like the height that's that's where you get to in the first half. Yeah. And then once he's married this rich woman, it all goes to shit because he's a terrible person and their marriage is no good and he's cheating on her in front of her and her son hates him. And Her son from the first marriage. Yeah. Yeah. He's trying to get a title because his mother comes to him and says, it's all well and good for you to be married to this rich woman, but if she dies, her son inherits everything and you're going to be cut out. And so you need to get a title so you'll have your own money. And so he's spending all of her money trying to win favor with the people who could get him a title. And it's not working out because he's just like not super smart. (laughs) And so his son with her ends up dying, who's like the only person he really loved. And no, um, before that, the the stepson ends up getting into an altercation with him before society. He assaults the stepson and society then rejects him. So all that money he spent has fully gone to waste at this point it comes to nothing then the son that he loves dies and you know it's just about like his ruin yeah then the the stepson comes back they get into a duel there's a lot of duels in this movie he gets shot in the leg and then he's he has to go to a like the agreement they all come to is he just needs to leave yeah that's barry linden yeah it's based on a thackeray novel it's boring as all hell yeah here here was my thought about this so Both of the movies, I said, yes, I would have been mad to, I think, as we continue to discuss, have a lot of technical merit. This movie is beautiful. It's beautifully shot. We didn't talk about this in the technical innovations, but he had to get special lenses to shoot this movie because it's primarily lit at night by actual candlelight. There's no artificial light. So there's some technical innovation and the candlelight scenes are lovely. And many of the scenes look like contemporary paintings of the time costumes are lavish it's all very lush the thing that it reminded me of a lot was gone with the wind obviously not with the racial elements yeah (laughs) but you have this sort of unlikable protagonist and then it became most apparent when his son dies because his kid dies exactly how scarlett o'hara's kid dies which is falling off a horse falling off a horse is very dangerous i don't know if how many i don't know if we need to keep track of that i don't know if that's just you know like a classic (laughs) literature way to kill the kid of a shitty main character and that's how they get their comeuppance but it's weird Mm mm-hmm One thing about this movie, too, is it has a very present narrator who helps really string this movie together, which, you know, is a sign that the movie's not really working on its own as a narrative because the narrator is not only sort of filling in plot pieces, but he's explaining why characters are feeling certain ways. So in particular... The scene where Barry Lyndon meets the gambler, he's supposed to be spying on him because they think the gambler is a spy. And he just breaks down and starts crying and confesses that he's a spy. And the narrator explains that it's because he's so excited to see his countrymen because they're both Irish. But I think if that wasn't there, he'd be like, why is this guy crying? What just happened? And why has he done this? Exactly. Interestingly enough, I read in the book that that guy's his uncle. 
I don't know why they changed that. Oh, I feel like that makes way more sense. Yeah, why he would be crying. Yeah, or why he would be like, oh, my uncle, I love you. I will abandon everything that is yeah. I currently am doing and the two of us will run off together. The narrator also is the person who tells us that the Barry and his wife have fallen in love. That happens entirely off screen. And the narrator is like, and she immediately fell in love with him. And you, the viewer, are like, why? Okay. <laughs> but I guess it gets them out of having to try to figure out how to do that work. Yeah. I mean, the most interesting thing to me about this is critical consensus at the time compared to critical consensus now. I was reading all of these different quotes from reviews at the time that I very much agreed with. Many of them described it as looking like a coffee table book. One of them said that it might as well be a three-hour slideshow for art history majors. Hmm. <laughs> Clearly, it's very beautiful, but also... It's not a movie. <laughs> like, what is the narrative? It's just pretty pictures all in a row, which I agreed with. But for some reason, since then, the critics have all decided that actually this is maybe Stanley Kubrick's masterpiece and is the best thing ever. And I don't understand what has led to the change. The quote from Roger Ebert when he added it to his list of great movies in 2009 was... Stanley Kubrick's Barry Lyndon, received indifferently in 1975, has grown in stature in the years since and is now widely regarded as one of the master's best. It is certainly in every frame a Kubrick film, technically awesome, emotionally distant, remorseless in its doubt of human goodness. I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> I just don't understand why those are qualities that are supposed to recommend it to me other than technically awesome. If you love Kubrick and this is potentially like the greatest distillation of his sort of perspective maybe you could appreciate it but yeah. yeah it's not an engaging story it's not working at a character or a plot level and I would say that is still a problem for it as a film it's a problem for me especially when it's three hours and five minutes long it's pretty long <laughs> <laughs> I, I will give you a sense of where I was when I finished watching it. These were the first notes I took down. Hated it. So fucking boring. Why so long? Who gives a shit about any of them? <laughs> Again, we're going to continue to talk about this and see this. It's gone with the wind. It's raging bull for me. It's just like, yep, you directed the hell out of that, Stanley. Yeah. All right. Should we talk about the yes and no Nashville? I think we should. Let's talk about Nashville. Okay, how are we going to summarize Nashville? <laughs> Here's how we're going to summarize Nashville. As we've already said, it is a huge ensemble piece. It's set over five days in Nashville in the music industry. It's very much kind of like a slice of life. It's improvisational for the most part. So the inciting incident uh, mainly is that this singer, Barbara Jean, is coming back home to do a big performance and she has some kind of stress, nervous incident <laughs> and ends up in the hospital. No, she had like a she got like caught on fire. She was in the burn ward in Baltimore before she comes back. <laughs> like something happened to her. No, I mean when she returns. Oh, I think she's still recovering. Oh. Well, but there's like nothing happens to her. She has some sort of relapse of something mm -hmm. arriving in Nashville and has to go to the hospital instead of perform where she's supposed to perform. At the same time, there's this outsider politician campaigning on the fringes of the film. And he's driving around in this car and like, well, he's not, but they're driving around in a car and sending out a message of his populist opinions and his various campaign platforms. And he has a guy in town trying to organize an event. And so this guy is going around to all these musicians trying to get them to sign on to perform at this campaign event. 
at the end of the five days, a bunch of them end up signing on. At the event, there is an assassination attempt on Barbara Jean from one of the other characters that we've been following. And then all of the other people, there's this interesting moment where they end up singing as she's getting carried away. And all of the people in the crowd are singing along because one of the guys is like, this is Nashville. We won't be cowed. We're all going to move forward, even though you're trying to shoot at us kind of situation. So a ton more stuff than that happens. There are figures that represent different real life singers that are in it. There's a trio where two of the people in the trio are married, but clearly the woman is in love with the other guy in the group. And he is meanwhile sleeping with all of these various women around town one of whom is Lily Tomlin, who is a singer and the wife of the lawyer of one of these other musicians. And then there's a British journalist who's in town for the, well, she claims at least (laughs) to be a journalist in town from the BBC who's trying to interview everybody. And she's just fascinated by this whole Nashville scene. You have groupies. There's people who are trying to make it big. There's people coming into town who are songwriters. There's Jeff Goldblum as a silent character who just shows up in the background of several scenes and is he looks like a magician or something. I think he is a magician. He's, just, he's doing He's described magic. as Tricycle Man is the character name. But there's also like a man whose wife is dying and his niece is in town and she's sleeping with every man she meets. There's a guy that's just out of Vietnam who's going around meeting all of these people. He's obsessed with Barbara Jean. Everyone loves Barbara Jean. There's a black country singer who's supposed to be sort of based on Charlie Pride. There's just so many people. There's another, there's like a rival country singer who steps in to replace Barbara Jean, who is her foe. Barbara Jean's husband is also her manager, and he's doing all sorts of There's stuff. Elliot Gould playing himself. Oh, yeah. Elliot Gould as Elliot Gould, who just happens to be in town and shows up to one of their parties. <laughs> so yeah, a ton is happening. Mm-hmm. Even more than that is happening, but I think we can stop there. <laughs> so how do we begin? Or do we start with why you're a yes or why I'm a no? Well, you said you said you were a little on the fence, so maybe that's a place to start of what tipped you one way or the other. Yeah. Okay. I was on the fence. When I was half of the way through, I was like, I don't know if I'm sure about this movie. There's interesting stuff happening, but is it really like forming any sort of cohesive whole? Hard to say. And then when I got to the end with the assassination, which I did see coming because, you know, there's lots of interesting stuff pointing to it. And then thinking clearly this is making a political statement. But even when I finished it, I was like, I don't know if I know what that political statement is. But then I kept thinking about it and thinking, well, maybe I kind of want to rewatch it just to consider what's going on with all of these various threads. And so that was interesting to me. And I also loved that I could see the influence of it in a ton of films that have come after, like just the improvisational stuff and the way that the scenes blend into each other and the characters are running into each other's lives and that part was interesting to me and it felt very modern and I just couldn't stop thinking about it so I wasn't it definitely was not like my favorite movie of these movies but there was a lot that I really liked about it and so I I found myself not mad at the idea that it would have been best picture Okay. How about you? This is not a movie for me. Again, I found it to be technically very impressive. So I was aware of this about Robert Altman, this overlapping dialogue style that he has. And apparently... Hyper-realism. Well, I would push back on that, but I'll say why. (laughs) But apparently there was new recording technology available that allowed them to shoot it this way. I also, I was listening to Unspooled as a podcast where they have covered the AFI Top 100 movies. 
And they were saying that they shot so much footage. So apparently, initially, they were going to release two concurrent versions of the film called Nashville Red and Nashville Blue. Well, I read mixed up about that. Uh-huh. Yeah, they shot a lot. And, and some people have claimed there was a ton of extra. Other people said it was really just musical numbers that got okay. cut. And like, not a lot of story really got cut. But yeah. If there was so much extra stuff, the fact that they edited it down into something coherent is also impressive. I find the overlapping dialogue to be more form than function, just because, yes, in the real world, obviously, you hear a lot of overlapping conversations, but other people aren't trying to convey information to you through a conversation, and a movie is. And so, like... I got it, but it was, I found it irritating more than anything else. Sure. I think the, the initial thought I had actually, which was kind of funny when I was watching this movie, is it reminded me of a type of literature I also don't tend to really like. So the thing that it reminded me most of was William Thackeray's Vanity Fair or George Eliot's Middlemarch, which are these sure. very, very long, broadly satirical pieces where you have a million characters and it's touching on a bunch of different topics. And some of it's very specific to the time. So over time, you lose a lot of the satire. Because you're just like, I don't know what was happening in the 1800s, yeah, William, in Ireland. Yeah, reference to. I'm sure if I was alive at the time, I would have been like, that's hilarious. Yeah, but I'm like, I'm not getting it. And so like, yeah, that kind of thing just isn't to my taste. It's not sharp enough to be super funny to me. And it's just sort sure. of unfocused. I find it unfocused. It's very much unfocused. You're not wrong about that. There's a lot there. But is it that there's a lot there that you can dig into? Or is the movie vague and sketchy enough that you can just sort of read whatever you want into it. The other thing with this movie, which is, is you know, we talk about all these films, it's all of our subjective experiences, all taste. I don't particularly like this kind of music very much. And there are a lot of musical numbers. So I also had the thought and I went down a rabbit, I was doing the dishes. I went down a rabbit hole. So stick with me on this path. Of, okay. What if this were a movie called Detroit? And it was all Motown music. Would I found this movie substantially easier to sit through? And then I was like, ooh, what other places could you do this for? Like, what if it was called Kingston and it was all reggae music? Or what if it was called Minneapolis and you had both the uptown funk scene and the downtown punk scene and you were flipping back and forth between that? I smell a series. Or what if it was called Soul <laughs> and it was all like K-pop music? I was like, oh yeah, I would like, yeah. I would like these all a lot more. But then I also had the thought of what that would also do is you would have to have different ensemble casts. Detroit would be a mostly black cast. Kingston yeah. and Seoul are taking place in other countries. And then you also have places you don't see as much on screen or people you don't see as much on screen instead of a movie about like 24 white people just living their little lives, sleeping with other people or not sleeping with other people and doing whatever. And you're just like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Again, technically... I think it's a really impressive achievement. I just, I just, I think it's not for this guy. (laughs) I think that's completely fair. I think those are all completely valid points. And this is definitely one where it's a your mileage may vary situation. I think you're right. Like I am obsessed with the idea of a Detroit of this. That sounds amazing. (laughs) 16 different Motown style songs. Come on. Yeah, well, because there's like an hour at least of musical performances in this. So if you're suffering through the hour of performances, that's definitely going to be a a negative for you watching this movie. There are a ton of different places with different types of music that would be super cool. But I didn't know what it was going to be. And I was intrigued by what it was. And there were some great scenes. I loved the scene when the guy whose wife was dying died and he had just found out. And then the military guy is nattering in his ear about Barbara Jean and how cool Barbara Jean is. Mm -hmm. And I love Lily Tomlin always. This was her film debut. 
Yes. We love a film debut. Oh, my other place and time for music. This was my last idea. Not so much giving you a different group of people to focus on, but I also thought, what if it was a film called Orlando and it was 90s boy band pop? I mean, there's a lot about, you know, celebrity and fakeness and the performative nature of it all. That would definitely yeah. come to there bear so manufactured. in uh, Orlando. But yeah, I was happy that there's this blonde lady all the way through who keeps almost singing. And she, she doesn't, and she doesn't, and she doesn't. And then she finally gets to sing in the final scene. And I was like, yes, blonde lady, <laughs> you're fantastic. They even go so far as to have her perform at an event where you see her performing, but you don't hear her performing because there's like... She comes on after a character you missed, which is the lady who can't sing but is hot. Yes. Oh my God. The lady who can't sing but is hot. The scene when she has to strip, that's going to stay with me. There's this woman who can't sing, but she's beautiful and she's trying to make it and she gets invited to an event but she isn't told or it's not made clear (laughs) that the fundraiser event she's going to, she's supposed to strip at. She thinks she's just performing. And so then she tries to walk off stage and then they're like, well, we'll we'll get you a gig performing with Barbara Jean if you'll do it. And so she does do it. That was crazy to watch, but then it was amazing afterwards that she goes home and runs into her friend and she tells him what happens. And he's like, oh, no, that's terrible. And you're thinking he's just commiserating. And he's like, your voice is awful. <laughs> yeah, he tell finally you. tells her she can't sing. You're terrible. <laughs> Why did you do that? She's like, no, I'm amazing. Like, she's totally. She's delusional because men own. keep yeah. telling her she can sing. Because what they mean is she's hot. Yeah. Yeah. There's just were a lot of really interesting moments in it. it brought, I, I always like to bring in a Roger Ebert quote. Roger Ebert wrote, After I saw it, I felt more alive. I felt I understood more about people. I felt somehow wiser. <laughs> it's that good a movie. <laughs> mm, nah. Me and Roger Ebert had really different experiences. Yeah, me and Roger Ebert sometimes have similar experiences and often have very different experiences. But I'm always intrigued by what he has to say. We're different people. Um, it's okay, Roger. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, I thought it was interesting. I'm not here to argue that it's the winner. I'm much more intrigued to talk about the following three films. All right. Do we want to do them just in alphabetical order? That'll leave One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for last. Well, that's how it should be anyway. Let's start with Dog Day Afternoon. Okay. Dog Day Afternoon is about a guy who tries to rob a bank with Mm -hmm. a couple of partners and it does not go well. He's hoping Mm -hmm. for like an in and out job and they end up getting stuck in the bank for hours upon hours upon hours in a police standoff. We come to find out, spoiler alert, that the reason he is robbing the bank is so that he can afford to buy his lover a, what they call at the time, a sex change operation, what we think would call a gender affirming surgery. Yeah, and that's why he robs the bank. But in the end, the two bank robbers are caught, his partner is shot in the head, and he dies, and Al Pacino is taken away. So so yeah, this is another Sydney Lumet. I'm happy to add it to my tally of Sydney Lumet bangers. It's fascinating because it's sort of this little Trojan horse of a movie where you think it's like a bank heist movie. And then really it's a movie that ended up being sort of about gay rights. It was kind of a huge deal. Al Pacino was really the first major star to play a gay character. And it's handled, I think, in like a, especially for the era, very nuanced and delicate and sensitive way. Yeah, I was surprised. I was very concerned that it was going to be a very by today's standards, homophobic or transphobic film. And I thought it was pretty good. 
Yeah, well, I mean, they did extensively interview all of the people involved, and there was like a ton of input from them, and everybody who was there got paid for consulting on the movie, and they all had their own takes on it. I think they they did take pains to make it as accurate as they could. Everybody seemed to have good intentions, which is part of how they ended up succeeding for the most part. And then there were gay groups that gave it their seal of approval. And uh, so I was very impressed with that angle of mm-hmm. it. And I also was impressed because I think it's just a good movie. I liked the the bank stuff is all great. Tons of tension. It's shot really interestingly. It's such a fascinating bank robbery where they're stuck in there. And the, I mean, Al Pacino's character very much is not trying to hurt anybody. He just thought this would be an easy way to come make the cash. Sal is a little bit more of a wild card <laughs> inside the the bank. But it's fascinating because they're there forever and they're not really menacing any of the people with violence. So it gets to this point where there's a scene where one of the hostages from the bank is using Al Pacino's rifle to do some sort of military rifle trick thing. <laughs> yeah, they're all hanging out, really. Yeah, they're just chilling in this bank. Unfortunately, they have no air conditioning, so it's getting real hot in there. But they're kind of just chilling in the bank, waiting for the bus to arrive to take them to their flight. In this movie, too, there was a lot of improvisation. And so that oftentimes makes things feel more real and loose. The phone conversation, there's an emotional phone conversation between Al Pacino and Leon. And that was pretty much all improvised. And it's fabulous. Yeah. <laughs> it's so good. The other thing I enjoyed is this movie is also just pretty funny in places. So you're yeah. enjoying the ride. Poor Sonny and Sal are so incompetent. Yeah. <laughs> when they first arrive at the bank, they have a third accomplice who just is like, I, I That's can't amazing. do this. I can't do this. And then they have a debate about who's going to take the car. <laughs> He's like, leave the keys. Yeah. We need the car. And he's like, then how am I going to get home? How am like, I take get home? <laughs> we need the car. It's amazing. I mean, it's just you really feel for the guy, which I think is sort of how it was in, in real life. One thing people will probably recognize from this movie is him standing in front of the bank yelling Attica mm-hmm. and the crowds cheering, which I heard is another improvised moment. <laughs> Apparently in AD, before he went outside to do a crowd scene, just said to Al Pacino, mention Attica. <laughs> so he improvised that whole thing with yelling Attica and the crowd being like, Attica! Like everybody freaking out about it. But the crowd is very much on his side because he's you know, sticking it to the cops and yeah. giving them cash and like they're all just there watching. So it's a fascinating piece. I think it works as a bank heist movie and I think it works as a queer rights movie and it does both of those things simultaneously. And yeah. Al Pacino is so good. He's very, very good in it. He's very, very good. Um, the other improv scene I just want to mention is they're figuring out how they're going to make their escape and so they're planning on getting a a jet uh and so sunny al pacino asks uh his uh his collaborator sal where he wants to go to get out of the country and sal says wyoming (laughs) and i didn't (laughs) notice this i read this afterwards but if you look you can see al pacino trying not to break as he just yeah well they said Sidney lumet almost laughed out loud and ruined the take (laughs) so he was like covering his mouth you can go anywhere where do you want to go wyoming wyoming's not a country you want to go to Wyoming. Oh, Sal. What I didn't realize is that character, not character, that person in real life, Sal, was 18. Oh, and the no. guy that plays him is like 
38. Oh, <laughs> Sal. So they didn't Sal. think they were going to cast him, but the actor was just so great. Yeah. That they were like. So yeah, I think it, it's a sharp script with yep. really fun improv. It's enjoyable to watch. You know, yep. Sidley Lumet does a great job directing it. It's a great performance from Al Pacino. I think it's unfortunate he was up against Jack Nicholson this year because he could have mm-hmm. won the Best Actor Award. But you, you get what you get in the year that you do it. What are you going to do? You get what you get and you don't get upset, you know? Yeah. I also love Charles Durning as mm-hmm. the cop who's negotiating with him. Chris Sarandon is Leon and he's fantastic too. Mm-hmm. Just great performances all around. I don't have any complaints. Well uh-huh. done, Dog Day Afternoon. Good job, everyone. Way to go. <laughs> Good job. You ready to talk about Jaws? Yes, let's talk about Jaws. Another one. I mean, we just were talking about Steven Spielberg and here we are again in Steven Spielberg land. So let us discuss. This is his first big movie. Mm -hmm. He was 29. Insane. Incredibly. (laughs) When he made it. If people don't know the story, I will give you the brief refresher. But really... You should watch Jaws. They're in this small island called Amity Island. You have a a big city cop who's sort of not retired, but kind of retired to be the cop on uh, Amity Island where there's basically no crime. Yeah. And uh, he's taken his family here. He's afraid of water and living on an island. That's very important. And then we start having shark attacks. The shark kills a girl and it's quite clearly a shark attack the sheriff wants to announce it but then the mayor slash head of the business community of amity island pressures the emmy the great conflict of this film yes is man versus nature but it's really they don't want to shut down the island because it's going to hurt the economy because it's the fourth of july weekend where they make all their money it's man versus capitalism they cover it up, basically, that that girl was killed by a shark, even though Brody had wanted to close the beaches. He gets pressured out of it. Then a little boy dies, and they, they can't really hide it anymore. <laughs> there is a shark around the island, and so Brody shuts the beaches. The mother of the boy offers a reward for someone to find the shark. Uh, Robert Shaw is this, you know, salty fisherman guy with a lot of interesting fisherman stories, mm-hmm. and he says that it's going to be he'll need way more money to find the shark it's going to be very difficult they call in someone from the oceanographic institute who is richard dreyfus to be their shark expert and so they realize they've just got to go out and uh find this fucking shark so brody the sheriff and then i don't remember the character names for either of the other guys quint but and quint this is the fisherman hooper and Hooper is Richard Dreyfuss's character. The three of them go out on Quint's boat to go get this shark. And, you know, they do, but... the shark almost gets them. Quint <laughs> dies. They... Quint dies, but they do finally end up killing the shark. So that's Jaws in short. It is the first movie that was shot on the ocean. If it hadn't turned out, that would have been a mistake. <laughs> yeah, it went way over budget. I don't have any idea how Stephen convince them to let him direct this movie in the first place and then keep directing it when it cost so much money they were supposed to have a like animatronic shark that they kept having problems with there were supposed to be way more of the shark in the movie and thank god it kept breaking yeah because he ends up just shooting around it using the mystery of what you don't see to be what's scary about the movie and all of that Far works better so well the the least effective and scary parts of the movie are when there's too much shark although i do think it's still the scene with the shark blowing up still works 
And I think when the shark first comes out in that jump scare behind the chief. But also I feel like what's selling that is his reaction. The shot when I whip around and it's just his face. Yeah. Classic Steven Spielberg reaction face shot. I feel like that's definitely doing a lot of the work there. And to be fair, my favorite jump scare in the movie, which always gets me no matter how many times I've seen this film, does not involve the shark and involves a dead guy underwater. That's a great jump scare. I love that. But yeah, what he doesn't show is what sells this movie. I mean, the, the score, obviously. Yes. The score is incredible. But just the, all of the shots from underwater of the people, hugely iconic, putting yourself in the perspective of the shark and just seeing people's legs kicking is super creepy. I love when they find the first body and they like the reveal of it you see hardly any of the and body it's just like I'm, the crabs on it yeah and like a little bit of her hand but before that i love the shot of the little underling sheriff guy who drops into frame having just yes. looked at her and all you see is his reaction face that's so and good. then it cuts to chief brody and the guy who was with the girl in the background and you see them and then you see him stop the kid and, and go forward yeah it's, yeah it's really it's perfectly shot well it's so good so yeah the the what you don't see and the music combined are what make every scary moment of this movie so i saw jaws for the first time as an adult probably like uh-huh. seven or eight years ago so now this is like the fourth time i've seen it we saw it once like on the big screen together in a theater and yeah. i recommend that if you can find a jaws screening in a theater like with people and on the big screen it's totally worth it yeah it's a great experience it's really really good but you know i think we talked about this a little bit with et but i, I don't know how steven spielberg does this but he somehow manages i don't know if it's just him managing tone but like you're having a good time, but he can still have these beats that really punch you in the gut emotionally. And, you know, you can be scared, but then, you know, there'll be a little moment of comedy that you enjoy. And something about it keeps you engaged. Whereas, like, sometimes you watch a movie about something terrible and you're like, I would like to never see that again. Yeah, I don't ever and I want don't to think about or see that want again. <laughs> to deal with that. But, like, the scene where the, the young boy's mother comes up to Chief Brody and talks it's to him so about it, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's so good because she comes up to him because she finds out that he knew that the first girl had died from a shark and covered it up in her mm-hmm. mind. And so it's like, this is on you that you didn't close the beaches. Yeah. And it the reason it hits so hard is because Brody already feels that way. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I mean, all of those beats work so well because they set up his death perfectly too because you see him on the beach with her beforehand and he wants to go back in the water and just wanted to go back in the water yet and he's like just five more minutes and then he's in the water and then they don't show his body when he dies they show the the ripped up raft right that he was on floating you, in the surf you also don't know what's going to happen because not only is that little boy out there they're intercutting between other people you're concerned like there's a dog in the water and like oh is the shark gonna yes. eat the dog and there's you know a, a, an older woman in the water and you're like, oh, is yep. the shark going to go after this woman? Like, you're flipping back and forth, and you're like, I'm that concerned whole about everything. Scene, it amps up the tension so much, and I don't think there's even a lot of music in the scene. There's a lot of just like splashing sounds and silence mm-hmm. as you're seeing all of these various people in the water who are in danger, and Brody's on the beach knowing they're in danger and freaking out about it, but unable to do anything. And so he's just like staring out at the water as all of these people are trying to talk to him about their bullshit that they're asking. The yeah, that's the for. other thing about this town is everyone else, everyone's concerns are so minimal. Like a guy comes up to him, he's like, you got to do something about all these cats that are on my driveway. <laughs> 
Yeah, and people are, he, one guy wants him to like change a parking zone or something yeah. in front of a building of his, and they're talking at him, and he is just staring out at the water, and you're seeing all of the various like vulnerable people in danger and then yeah the dog and the woman and all sorts of things and then once there's been the attack and everyone gets out of the water and everyone's finding their loved ones then the mother is just walking down the beach yelling his name because she's the only one who can't find her person oh my god that's also the scene where there's that iconic i don't quite know how to that pull zoom where the camera's pulling out but zooming in on on brody great Speaking of the beach scene, though, in the aftermath of that, I love when the mayor, who is the one who covered it up and wouldn't let him close the beaches, is at the hospital later because Brody's there because his kid is in shock from another shark. And the guy is talking to him about this. Now they're going to have to close the beaches. And he has this moment where he is sort of stunned. And he says, my kids were on that beach, too. Like he, uh, you know, right? (laughs) he did not understand really what he was doing. And the movie is such a, but it's such a perfect metaphor for like anything that could threaten an economy, but you're like, but people are dying. And so like, we've just lived through COVID, obviously, and it's like the same yeah. exact thing. And you even have people right in the town are like, I don't think the shark exists the entire, almost the entire time. Yeah. And you're like, we have a lot of evidence of a shark attack. So I'm pretty sure there is a shark, but I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. The tonal shifts are just perfect and typical Spielberg style. I'm, I love, love, love the scene so brody has just met hooper mm-hmm. they've they hardly know each other but they have sort of commiserated because they are two of the only like sane people in this town of all these crazy guys showing up to try to go out and hunt the shark and then there's a scene where hooper shows up at brody's house after they've had this very traumatic day and he has just watched brody be berated by the mother and like clearly brody is in a bad emotional place <laughs> and hooper shows up and he brings wine and he comes into the scene and he just sits down across from brody and asks him how his day was and Brody says swell and the two of them just like smile at each other and share this moment of understanding that character moment just works so well these guys hardly know each other and there's this moment of them really having this connection it's also after that wonderful little moment where that scene starts where he's sitting with his son and his son is just imitating him back and forth I love it I love it so much. The character moments. Yeah, his son is just imitating him. And then he can't help but play into it because even though he's in a terrible mood, his son is adorable. Yeah. (laughs) So the family works so well in this. His wife is wonderful. They have a great relationship. Their kids are delightful. And he's just so good with that. It reminds me a lot of E.T. The family Mm -hmm. feels so real. Uh, and their relationships with each other work so well. So yeah, that whole dinner scene I'm obsessed with. He's The kid is mimicking him and it brings this like delightful charm to it right after we've had this gut punch scene. And then Hooper showing up and commiserating with him works so well. I love the wife sitting down. He's brought these two bottles of wine and they open the bottle of wine and Brody pours himself a like water glass full yeah. of wine. <laughs> And everyone's like, okay. It's just full of warmth and humor and just makes you connect. I I think I said the reason his stuff works so well is because of how he deals with emotion. And I I just, he's so good at it. Mm -hmm. He's a genius. But yeah, what a movie. Yeah. I think we we have to mention the scar scene and the Indianapolis scene as well. I'm obsessed with the scar scene. That's super iconic. That's another perfect, he takes tone and does this amazing stuff with it where... The guys hadn't been getting along. 
because Quint thinks that Hooper is this rich kid with, you know, no real life experience. Yeah, this this university ivory tower boy doesn't know what he's doing. Yeah, so then they're sort of laughing with each other at the end of a day and they start sharing their scars and their scar stories and they're having a good time and they're laughing about it and Brody is hilariously over in the corner being like, I kind of have an appendix scar. Like he's not participating because mm-hmm. he doesn't have any stories to share. And then they realize that Quint has a, a tattoo he's removed and it turns out that it's a tattoo for the USS Indianapolis and he shares a story that is just harrowing as all hell about their ship going down and they're all out in the water and they're getting attacked by sharks and it's just like it draws you in it's a great performance from Robert Shaw so good and then from that you transition right back into them singing show me the way to go home (laughs) I want to go to bed and then that transitioned into the shark is back like there's just all of this And it's interesting foreshadowing, too, because he also says that scene, like, I'll never wear a life vest again. And that comes back. And then obviously he's the only person who dies to the shark. The shark finally gets him. But I have Mm -hmm. to say also there's a part of that scene where, yeah, they're going back and forth with their scars. And I love the way it's shot, too, because they're like they start draping their limbs over each other. Yeah. They're getting physically closer as they're sharing yeah. their stories and getting like emotionally closer. But it always makes me laugh when Hooper's doing this bit about how a girl broke his heart, but he starts to unbutton his shirt and he's like, look at this. And Quint goes, you're wearing a sweater. You're wearing a sweater? Sort of drives in such a hair chest. Something about that. I love it. Look at this. You're That's wearing great. a sweater. <laughs> the boat sinking is incredible. Mm. That stuff works super well. The, the drama of it and how it looks and how it works and and Brody being left just on the little bit of mask yes. sticking out of the water at the very end is awesome to look at. Oh, and there are uh, some beautiful sunset shots throughout this movie with people silhouetted against the sunset, both in the beginning when the girl is, is running to go skinny dipping, but then also when they're out on sea fighting the shark. So mm-hmm. got some, you know, good stuff going. There are a lot of technically brilliant directors and Steven Spielberg is a technically brilliant director, but paired with how good he is with character and emotion, it just is, he's like irresistible. It makes the movies irresistible. (laughs) They're just so watchable and entertaining and you feel all of the feelings and you're like, wow, I just had an experience at the movies. (laughs) Thanks, Steve. Yeah, that really feels like we've gone to the movies, you know, in the romantic sense of the word. So Jaws. Love it. It's great. It's actually it's great. great. It's actually great. I've mentioned it peripherally, but I haven't name dropped him. John Williams deserves oh, yeah. all the credit. Another perfect Steven Spielberg score for John Williams. The music is iconic. And I guess this is an interesting place to mention that Steven Spielberg, little 29-year-old, was not pleased about not being nominated for Best Director no. <laughs> for this movie. And I think he was right. He definitely deserved to be nominated for Best Director, but he's a 29-year-old and nobody knew who he was. You know how the Academy works. You don't like to nominate strangers. No. It did win 75% of the Academy Awards it was nominated for. That's true. Although I think we should reiterate it is bananas that he still does not win an Academy Award until Schindler's List, right? Like, that's the one. Well, that's (laughs) completely absurd. Is that true? Yeah, that's correct. Bananas. They knew who he was for a long time. Get it together. Academy. Why don't I have... I guess he wasn't a producer. Jaws isn't on this list, even though it was nominated for Best Picture, but I probably didn't get a producer producer, credit because he was such a little baby. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's absurd. 
but he definitely deserved to be nominated. I think we can all agree. But also, hilariously, he decided to film himself while the nominations were coming out because he expected to have a glory moment. And then he didn't get nominated. And then he embarrassingly pouted about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's a that's that's pretty funny. But, you know, it's OK. Everything's turned out okay. OK for a little Stevie Spielberg. People do dumb things in their 20s. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move it along to our winner of the evening. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Yeah, to, to summarize, it's the story of a guy, R.P. McMurphy. He is in prison for statutory rape. They do just sort of paper over that. You don't, They don't leave you to think about it a lot. He gives one yeah. of those, like, I promise you, she looked 18 sort of explanation. I think he says she was 18 going on 36, and she told me she was an adult. How am I supposed to know? Okay. But that's what he's in prison for, just so we all know. Yep. And he has decided that he does not want to do the labor required that he has to do when he's in prison. So he is pretending to be insane. So he's sent to this hospital, and they are going to evaluate him to determine if he truly has some kind of diagnosable disorder and then potentially send him back. There are a number of people he is in the ward with. It's a large cast of characters with sort of different concerns and and potential issues. But, you know, he doesn't want to be controlled. He wants to be a a free man. So he gets into conflict with Nurse Ratchet, who runs the ward, sort of egged on, I guess, by the other members of the ward. They they are sort of entertained by it because nobody has thought to fight with Nurse Ratchet before. And so they're like, this is an interesting novelty. (laughs) Right. Although I think he still instigates. Well, I mean, he definitely instigates. There's no instigator other than (laughs) R.P. And basically things escalate between him and Nurse Ratchet, culminating first in him getting taken off the ward with another person and getting a round of electroshock therapy that does not mellow him out. He ends up bringing some women into the ward at night. They have a huge party. He plans to escape. Yeah, but falls asleep. Things go really, really badly. And in the end, he is lobotomized. And then suffocated by another person on the ward who he befriends, Chief, who is a large Native American man who actually escapes. And that's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the film. So what are your thoughts about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? It's very good. So we read this book in high school and I believe watched this movie shortly thereafter. I did not remember it super well. I remember liking the book. a long time since high school. Yes. I do remember liking the book. I remember liking the movie. I I have a lot of thoughts about this movie that aren't fully situated. I I think there's quite a lot of interesting stuff going on. There's certainly a lot going on. (laughs) Yeah. You know, one of the complaints that Ken Kesey made about the movie is it switches perspective. So the book is really from the chief's perspective, but it's a very internal story like yeah i don't know unless you're doing a lot of narration yeah. i don't know how you would have done that there would be no way know. to really externalize that so they i think you know we've talked about it before a, a movie does not have to have fidelity to a book to be a good movie and i think they do a very good job but yeah i really liked it the performances are obviously great you're seeing some actors who you know well very early in their career so like Kudos on the casting. Yeah. An almost unrecognizably young Danny DeVito, an extremely young Christopher Lloyd, several character actors whose names you probably won't know, but you would recognize the faces of. It's a hell of a of an ensemble. Yeah. I Yeah. Before we get into the details, I will echo everything you've said. I think it's very well made. I think the performances are great. Jack Nicholson, so charismatic. 
And I love all of the people. And I want to talk about Billy because he's oh, such a little sweetie pie. Little Brad Dorf. <laughs> little Brad Dorf, who was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor. He's the only actor that did not win <laughs> of the One Floor for the Cuckoo's Nest people. But he plays this young kid who's in the hospital because he's tried to commit suicide a couple of times. And he clearly has this bad relationship with his mother, who's potentially very controlling. But you're only hearing about that sort of tangentially. And McMurphy takes him under his wing, as he does with a lot of the guys. He's a romantic. A lot of Billy's stories are about, like, he fell in love with this girl, and then he couldn't be with her. And that's why he tried to commit suicide the first time, and like mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. One of the girls that they bring in at their overnight party at the hospital they uh, lovingly coerce <laughs> Billy into hooking up with her because he's clearly very interested in this girl and she's sort of up for whatever and Billy's real cute. And so the two of them sleep together and then in the morning when they are discovered, Nurse Ratchet tells Billy that he did a very bad thing and she's going to tell his mother about it. And he doesn't react well to this news. No. And he ends up killing himself and that's why mcmurphy freaks out so yeah poor little poor little billy the performance in the scene when he's been discovered is so good because he has slept with this girl he's so confident he runs out of the room and he's like hardly even stuttering at all and he's had a great time and then um, immediately nurse ratchet starts telling him what she's gonna do and how bad he was and how he needs to rat out his co-conspirators and how she's gonna talk to his mother and his stutter gets worse and worse through the conversation he's so good we should talk about Nurse Ratched. That's one of the most iconic yes. characters in film history. Louise Fletcher. Very good does performance. A fantastic job. She's this interesting villain because she's not showy. She's very cool and calm and collected. And I think that's part of what makes her so scary. <laughs> and what's interesting to me is when a person is so calm in the face of any emotion, whether that emotion is justified or not, the emotional person always seems crazy compared to the calm person. And she uses that to her advantage in all kinds of situations where unjust things are happening and people are complaining about them. And as long as she's just like, I don't know why you're getting so emotional. <laughs> you know, that's interesting because I think I had a different experience watching this movie. I don't know. I can't remember if this is in the book because, again, I don't remember the book It's very been a well. minute. Yeah. But my initial impression watching the movie or my initial thought was it's very interesting, right, that this is a world where the white men are the patients and it's a world being run by women and black men. That's yep. an interesting power dynamic. And again, I'd be interested to reread the book too, because I'm not sure where this is coming from. Big Murphy is pretty selfish, right? Thousand percent. <laughs> yeah. So he decides, oh, the music is too loud. And Nurse Ratchet tries to point out, well, like it's loud because some of the men need it to be loud. And they have a vote about whether or not to watch the World Series. And she's like, everyone needs to vote. And he's like, these these guys, they can't vote. They don't count. And she's like, well, you know, we're all Do you part- think she- right in that in that well i think if you extrapolate out there are people who are like oh we should all be free and able to do whatever we want to do and and it's like people have different challenges and different needs and in a society right you have to account for everyone's needs and so like these men clearly can't live with the type of freedom they've committed themselves for a reason right and mm-hmm. i think there's a valid point to be made of you aren't asking everyone what they want and also everyone can't tell you what they want some people need someone to help them figure out what they need. I think the issue with Nurse Ratchet and the system broadly is it is not flexible, right, in its approach. And it is not particularly kind as a result of that. 
And so I think that that tension is there and I think it's interesting. So I, I found Nurse Ratchet to be not just a clear cut villain. You have this tension right between the two extremes with R.P. McMurphy and, and Nurse Ratchet. But I also think, again, it's kind of interesting who's in control in this situation. It's women and how in the end does R.P. McMurphy try to combat the system he tries to strangle her right like he uses his physical size i also think it's interesting and i don't think the movie taps into this too much and i wonder again because we're in the chief's perspective in the book the only non-white person in the ward is chief bromden and he's also the only person who escapes at the end and i am not quite sure what the movie version is saying about that and i can't remember what the book is saying about that but it's interesting it is interesting we also should say milos foreman the director grew up in soviet czechoslovakia and in his mind, this is, movie is about that sort of experience and growing up under a Soviet regime and there being very strict rules that didn't necessarily all make sense, but there were the rules and the rules had to be followed. And that sort of the overbearing bureaucracy of it is is that to him. Yeah. I mean, I don't disagree with you that she's more nuanced than purely villainous, but I definitely find her scary. Her attempt to control Billy. It's very cruel. It's very cruel. I also thought it was interesting, like, again, the gender politics of it, potentially the the racial component of it. There's a Mm -hmm. scene, I forget where this happens, but the head doctor is interviewing McMurphy and he's really quick to call her a cunt uh, because she likes a rigged game. I think it's about their initial vote. And it's like, you're pretending to be crazy to get out of prison. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. (laughs) I don't know. You're you're trying to rig the game. I'm not quite sure, McMurphy. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. We didn't really talk about Chief. Chief is the narrator of the book, a more minor character in the movie because it's hard to. We can't be, a be inside his head. <laughs> in a book or in a movie. But he is a character who has convinced everyone that he is deaf and cannot speak. And so he just sort of goes around his business and everybody ignores his presence. The reason McMurphy's interested in him at first is he's very tall. So he brings him in on a basketball game because he's like, if I can just put you under the net, you'll be able (laughs) to dunk the ball, basically. And so he just keeps butting up against Chief because he that's just what he does. And so the two of them sort of end up bonding and he finds out that Chief actually can speak and hear. And he just it's like been pretending the whole time. path of least resistance through this whole thing if everyone thinks that i cannot interact with them they won't interact with me and so the two of them become friends but then it is at first mcmurphy wants to run and he wants chief to come with him and chief's like i don't think i'm ready to go and then when mcmurphy has been lobotomized um and he he, chief mercy kills him and decides he has to get out of there so he escapes by lifting this ridiculously heavy piece of bath equipment (laughs) throwing it out of the window and running and yeah i i don't know i agree it's very interesting that there's the one non-white character on the ward who is the one who escapes i don't know what that means i don't know either and i wonder if the book has more there because again we're in his head and in you know the movie because we're with him less it it's not quite clear but i think it's interesting it's definitely interesting So, yeah, I don't know to what extent I'm reading into things that the movie's not trying to say. And again, I can't remember thematically what the book is trying to accomplish. So what got kind of ported over to the movie, but maybe Milos Foreman is not particularly interested in, but is obviously still in the text. But yeah, it's an interesting microcosm of society in this in this place. And I think the the power dynamics are pretty interesting. Yeah, I liked it. I thought it was still really compelling, really good. Good performances. Good stuff. Yeah. 
it is a successful film and there's plenty of debate to be had about what it is saying. So that's another plus in my column. Mm -hmm. Provides all sorts of opportunity for conversation. Oh, we didn't talk about the amazing moment when McMurphy, who's been playing around and fucking with Nurse Ratchet the whole time, says to one of the orderlies that he gets out in like 67 days or whatever. And the orderly is like, what are you talking about? We have you now and you're not leaving. Yeah, (laughs) that's not how institutionalization works. If you're committed, we get to decide when you leave. And he's like, no, my schemes. (laughs) Yeah. He has this like, you know he throws a fit at all of the other guys who are there because he's like why did you guys let me harass nurse ratchet for your entertainment if you knew that i could just be kept here forever and that's when he finds out that almost none of the other guys are committed they're yeah they're there voluntarily they're all there voluntarily and he can't understand why anybody would voluntarily be there and so that's an interesting moment for him it's a very, um, it's a pretty fussy, honestly, when the order is like, nah, you think you're in control? We're in control. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oopsies. Yeah. But I think, right, it's what? important to keep in mind throughout this movie, yes, like, Jack Nicholson is so charismatic, and you you do kind of end up on his side, and obviously the ending was extreme, and he did commit statutory rape. He's not a good guy. No, he's not a good guy. But also he probably should have just still been in prison. Part of why Ratchet feels like a villain is because she's the reason he's still there. There's a scene where all of the doctors are having their meeting about whether or not to commit him. And most of them don't think that he has a mental condition. Mm -hmm. And so they're about ready to let him go back to prison and finish serving out his sentence. And Nurse Ratchet steps up to be like, I really think that we shouldn't just pass the buck and abandon him. We should try to do our best because we've signed on to help him out or whatever. And you're sort of like... I don't know about that. Yeah, but I mean, thinking about other sort of thematic lines that are running through this movie, obviously, we don't quite understand her particular motivation. And she's had this antagonist relationship with him, but about, you know, rehabilitation versus imprisonment. And just because you don't have a diagnosable disorder, does that mean that there's something wrong with you? Or do we have the DSM because you have to code something for insurance? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, obviously, that is a valid conversation. I would not argue that that is why she wants to keep him under her control. I mean, we're in the chief's we're in the chief's perspective, uh, not so much in the movie, but certainly in the book. So I don't know. The book must not cut away to scenes yeah, that aren't like, with the, him. He has no idea that that scene is happening. That stuff in all the must book. be invented for the movie. Yeah, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> changes changes for yeah. an adaptation. Okay, unless you have more to say about. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. No, I liked it. Before we get to our Did the Oscar Get It Wrong, we should talk about if there's anything else that was in the conversation, important movies from this year. There are not one, but two top-tier cult classics that came out this year. Hugely influential cultural films and definitely deserve to be talked about. And one of them we've already mentioned because it was on the list of box office. Yes top five and that is rocky horror picture show but the other one that came out this year is monty python and the holy grail great time i mean what about these movies incredible so obviously you and you had seen monty python before this seen it several times before this i did rewatch it though because it had been a few years but you had not seen rocky horror picture show correct correct what's your reaction to rocky horror picture show I liked it. It's pretty fun. It's obviously super campy. It's super queer. I was interested. I was looking up if, you know, sort of the conversation is turned on and whether or not people think it's 
transphobic now, which there's definitely some chatter in that sphere. But I think you can't deny it's a it's a very queer movie. I yeah. also think it's interesting that both Chris and Susan Sarandon are in, in queer films this year. And I, yeah. you know, is that a coincidence or is that like they were like, let's do it? I don't know. But I love that for them. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the conversation around trans issues could not have changed more from 1975 to now. Like tons of yeah. things have happened in the conversation. But interestingly, we do have two movies this year with trans characters and i think you can make the argument that dr frankenfurter is not a trans character because he's an alien fair enough fair (laughs) enough but but we have one movie with a trans character and another movie talking about transsexuality in those terms right well he's a transvestite he says but they're from the planet transsexual it's messier in rocky horror if i'm being honest it's messier and arguably more playful if you know i would not say arguably it is definitely more (laughs) playful the the whole vibe of rocky horror is it's a it's a play on b-horror movies the twist being the villains the scariest thing that these uptight you know middle americans can imagine is queer characters so the whole thing is is unapologetically queer we've got layers on layers his name is frankenfurter he has like kind of a frankenstein's monster rocky horror that it's named on rocky is this creature that he creates he's created multiple creatures they're also aliens they're bringing in like every possible element of a b-horror movie but it's really about these two little uptight white American couple that gets wrapped into this world and then, you know, infected by all of this queerness. And so that's the vibe. It's like very in your face. This is a queer movie. That is the point of it. Mm. And I, I think it's definitely more playful than Dog Day Afternoon. Yes. <laughs> I'm, But yeah, because of that, I'm sure you're right that there are people that are having a conversation about whether or not it's transphobic. I would argue that's certainly not the intention of it in 75. I think they were not here to make fun of trans people. They were here to make fun of squares. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, the whole point is them being like, does this shock you? Does this shock you? What if I did this? (laughs) And you know, Tim Curry is extraordinary as Dr. Frankenfurter. I believe that's his debut role his debut film role yeah Yeah. he had originated the stage role in the rocky horror show the british stage version of this a lot of the cast of this were the original people from the stage version they just brought in americans to play the couple uh, the couple and susan sarandon is fabulous I love her. The I enjoyed it. Barry Boswick as well. Barry Boswick is great. The two of them getting seduced by Tim Curry. Delightful. I just think it's like such a fun time. I totally get why people dress up and go to midnight screenings of it and perform it live alongside the movie. It's just, you know, a rip roaring good time. And what's amazing to me about it is I did not realize it was a studio picture. This is a 20th century Fox movie which I'm amazed by. And th- what was really cool is that it obviously was had mixed reactions at the time, uh, unsurprisingly, given the content. And 20th really sort of stuck with it, or at least whatever executive there had signed on stuck with it and came up with ways for them to market it that would be successful. And they'd heard that there were 
other successful midnight movies. So they started selling it as a midnight movie and they put it in theaters around college campuses and places that they thought would be interested. And they ended up turning it into the successful thing that it be- mm-hmm. became because they didn't just let it die. I feel like if this movie, not necessarily this movie, because you can get away with unapologetically queer things, but if some little movie that was not doing well was happening now the studio would be so quick to just bury it (laughs) like we're not gonna put a lot of thought into trying to come up with a special marketing strategy for some tiny little movie that nobody cares about so i just thought that was fascinating yeah and now it's the longest running movie theatrical release of all time way to go guys yes because it it. still runs you can still find those midnight showings of rocky horror in a town near you um Near you. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. It's like they planned it just for you. And then, yeah, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, another I just like a comedy classic. The, the formative document of British comedy. I, I obviously had seen it several times. I hadn't watched it in a few years. I was interestingly struck by how it just like created the language of current British comedy, like not necessarily the topics, but the beats the way the words fit together like melodically how it is structured i i was listening to scenes of it and being like oh that sounds exactly like james acaster (laughs) in this scene and like it's just fascinating to me how yeah even if you're not doing monty python monty python has affected you (laughs) in whatever your comedy is are you are you a fan have you like watched flying circus and and i haven't watched all of them watched life of brian it's been a minute since i well i mean their show the oh i have not seen their show i mean it's great i don't think you might be shocked to hear for me if you had told me it was terrible that would have been interesting (laughs) no it's so good i love flying circus but for me holy grail so like you know they have their two other movies life of brian and meaning of life and holy grail for me sort of threads this perfect needle of like life of brian has too much plot and meaning Mm -hmm. of life has not enough plot but this is like it's just lovely sketches strung together on enough plot that you're like i'm still watching a movie yeah but you have these wonderful bits it's perfect because the structurally it is just sketches this is a movie comprised of sketches but there happen to be characters that are the same that run through all of the sketches and so completely unrelated things can happen next to each other but you are still like moving along to some kind of a plot which works really well i i also thought it was interesting the first 45 minutes the first half of it every sketch is hugely iconic they're like every sketch is oh we all still quote that we all still quote that we all still quote that and then all of a sudden in the middle you sort of get to this sort of like plot lull where i had started to have moments where i was like oh i forgot about that (laughs) and then it does come back around in the end with you know them trying to cross the bridge and what is your name what is your quest what is your favorite color but i just thought it that was interesting to me that it was like wow the first half of it all bangers (laughs) do you have a favorite bit in the movie i'll put you on the spot we didn't try to come up i didn't think about it i mean i don't know that i do yeah i don't either so i will just go off the top of my head the things that i first remember i always love the black knight Mm -hmm. i really love the one that made me think of james acaster 
I really love the scene with the when the king's coming through and they're the like serfs in the muck and they're talking about the government and yeah. all of the ways like that scene I really love. I mean, so much of it is quotable. I'm not dead yet. The knights who say me, just like tons and tons and tons. Huge of tracts of land. Huge tracts of land. Yeah. I will say the the part that I think I quote most is what do we burn? More mm. witches. Yes. <laughs> oh, the witches stuff is so good. She turned me into a newt. I got better. <laughs> I got better. The insulting Frenchman. Mm. That's He's a classic. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's all so quotable. It's kind of incredible. Just incredible. I, British comedy was never the same. I think when people talk about British comedy, this is what they mean. Like, the if these are the... The, it's so good. The the building blocks <laughs> that made all of it possible. And it interestingly does a very similar thing to Rocky Horror where you're intercutting with like they have this in Rocky in Monty Python there's the documentarian who gets killed and then you're cutting back to go with yeah. the, the cops and then in Rocky Horror we also have a documentarian who is like telling the story of what oh, happened yeah. here. Yeah, that's that is funny that they have these sort of like pieces stitching it together, but it's it's mm-hmm. all good. That's a fun double feature, honestly. Honestly, a science fiction double feature. I would ad- I would highly advise watching those. And if I could nominate that double feature in place of Barry Lyndon for best picture, <laughs> I would do it. <laughs> I mean, it would never happen. But being very honest, I like both these movies more than Barry Lyndon and Nashville. So maybe that's my top five for the year. Oh, yeah, Who's you could put them in both. You could put them both in. Yeah. So I love them. Wonderful. We love a cult classic. They never get any respect at the Academy Awards, so they deserve to be talked about. Anything else? The three of our nominated five movies were in the top five at the box office. That's an anomaly. At least it is now. I think in the 70s might have been more common, yeah. but never happens these days. Kind of incredible. Cultural impact. I mean, lots of them. Jaws doesn't get more impactful. Yeah. I think One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest has been remembered. I mean, Nurse Ratchet is as much as I was going yes. a little bit back and forth, is an all-time movie villain. She's an iconic character, whether yeah. or not we want to call her a villain. I think AFI does call her a villain in the hundred yes, villains in here. You don't have to agree with everything the AFI does. I know I, I don't. don't. But speaking of the AFI, three of these movies are on their list of the top 100 films of all time. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, and Nashville. I think so, AFI also calls the shark from Jaws one of the all-time movie villains, and it's a shark, so it's not a villain. The mayor's the villain in that movie. The mayor is the villain. I guess what uh, one thing I didn't say during our Jaws conversation is this is maybe the worst thing that's ever happened to sharks, PR-wise. It really is. <laughs> like, I feel bad for sharks when I watch the movie. They're not villains. The problem is the movie does treat him like a villain because yes. the shark has very clearly decided to menace these particular people in a way that a shark would never do. But yeah, I will say so far, other than Barry Lyndon, that the Academy has done a pretty good job of picking the things that people then considered to be culturally relevant mm-hmm. other than our cult classics, but they were never going to do that. No. Because they're comedies and the Academy yeah. hates comedies. So yeah, I, I said this to you yesterday, but I haven't said it yet today. I found myself in the, the closest place I have been to where I was in our 1976 discussion. Oh, interesting. Where I hated one of the movies. <laughs> 
And then I felt like all four of the other ones were very good. <laughs> so I am intrigued that we those are back-to-back years, and I feel similarly yes. about both of them. Being realistic that the Academy was not going to nominate either Rocky Horror or <laughs> Holy Grail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there wasn't a ton of other stuff right this year that's like become super culturally relevant that they missed out on. So yeah, with nominees, they did a pretty good job. And honestly, like there is a universe, right, where the Academy doesn't nominate Jaws because it's a monster movie and a, you know, a popcorn piece and a thrill. And they, they, they managed to do it. And they did. They made the right choice there. And Steven Spielberg, much as he was upset about his lack of a director nomination, did talk about how the the critics had loved Jaws. And then when Jaws started to make a lot of money, crit- some critics started to turn on Jaws, which does not surprise me because people always think that whatever is popular cannot also be good. So I, I don't think Steven was surprised to not win Best Picture. Yeah. Some people thought Jaws would win Best Picture, but they don't usually like the most popular thing. So that brings us to the question, what do you think should have won this year? I really am torn. For 1976, I was sure it should have been Network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Much as I loved all four of those movies, I was sure it should have been Network. I loved One Floor Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Jaws, and Dog Day Afternoon. I love all three of them. I think all of them deserve to be remembered, deserve to be nominated, and I wouldn't have been mad at any of them being Best Picture. I do just have natural instincts to always lean towards Steven Spielberg movies. I don't know that... I mean, Jaws is wonderful, iconic, great movie. Not my favorite Steven Spielberg movie. I don't know. I mean, I'm not mad about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest winning. Maybe I should just give them this one. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I don't have a strong answer on what should have won. What do you think should have won? So I went back and forth a little bit on my approach to this year. I know we've mentioned in previous episodes that like every change every year. (laughs) Yeah. So I did actually consider saying no to everything except Jaws. But the reality is I'm not mad one floor of the Cuckoo's Nest one. I wouldn't have been mad if if I if Dog Day Afternoon one and I watched it and like, yeah, this movie's great. I just what I keep coming back to is like Jaws is the movie of this year. It is such a critical inflection point in film history for so many reasons. And it's not just that. It's a really good movie, too. It's great. It's the highest grossing movie of the year, probably by far. Like, I just, I think it is the best picture of this year for just so many reasons. I'm not going to fight you on it. Yeah. I have no problem That's where I land. One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, Dog Day Afternoon, very good, but... I think Jaws is the movie of of this year. It's wonderful. It's a wonderful movie. All right. So then we have to do our how many Academy Awards would Steven Spielberg have if we were in charge of the Academy (laughs) question. Well, the director's question is interesting, too. Milos won, I think so, too. Milos won. I think there's no question in my mind that Steven should have been nominated. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so hard. What he did... As a 29-year-old with his first big movie yeah, is extraordinary. I don't think anyone else could have done what he did with Jaws. So I don't know. Did he deserve to win it? I wouldn't have been mad. I mean, I think we would have loved it for him. Little exactly. little Steven Spielberg, 29 years old, getting up on that stage. Come on. Yeah. But would that have gone to his head? Would it have changed the trajectory Maybe of his he career? Maybe not become Steven Spielberg. That's a fair point. I don't want to do point. that. 
maybe we can't give him the award because no. it would have ruined everything. He has to keep fighting for it. It does seem it. like he was kind of like a, a little bit of a brat. Maybe yeah. he needed this. <laughs> oh, that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, it's dangerous. <laughs> All right, let's give it to Mia Lotion, not to Rail Stevens' career. Yeah. All right, well, how about we make this our decision then? Steven is nominated, but Milos wins. Mm-hmm. But we will let Jaws win. Yes. But, twist again, he is not a producer on this movie and would not have won the Academy Award, even yep. if Jaws did win. That's true. So we're still at two Academy Awards for Steven <laughs> for E.T. Okay, let's continue to keep track of our Steven Spielberg Academy Awards count. Fantastic. Then I guess our answer to did the Oscars get it wrong is indeed yes. Yeah. I've come around to it. You've won me over. Yes. But it's a mild yes. It is not a very angry yes. It's just as mild as the 1976 Rocky one. Like, it's fine for Rocky to win, even though I think it should have been that work. Yes. Okay. Wonderful. Good year. I mean, 75 and 76. What a year to be alive and go to the movies. Yeah. Back to back. (laughs) My God. Before we leave, we must visit... Jake Gyllenhaal Corner. Indeed, we must. We've got to come up with a jingle for Jake Gyllenhaal Corner one yeah. of these days. Obviously, he's not alive. No. He's he's knocking on the door. He's five years away. <laughs> but <laughs> if he were alive and acting in one of these films, which role would he have crushed? There's a wealth of choices this year. Mm-hmm. Truly. A lot of good male roles. Yeah. Interestingly, he does end up playing an iconic gay role in his career early on. Yes. Hmm. Maybe he would have wanted to play the Pacino role then. I think he would have been good at it. Of course he would have. A little harried Jake Gyllenhaal. I also thought of a younger Jake Gyllenhaal playing Billy in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I know. Breaks my heart to even mention Billy. (laughs) I mean, he could have he could have had a go at at Nicholson's part, but Nicholson's so iconic that yeah. I don't really want to give it away. No, we again we're we're trying to keep in mind that we're like pulling the actor out of the role. Yeah, which is like I don't necessarily want to pull Al Pacino out of Dog Day Afternoon either, even though I think Jake would have been good. It's hard because these are great performances. This is a year of great performances. There's not really anyone that I want to deny their role. There's not anyone where I was like, they were bad. (laughs) We should replace them. them out. Who cares? (laughs) He obviously could have slotted into Nashville anywhere. Sure. But is that giving Jake enough to do? No. I mean, there are meatier roles. I'm just going over all of our options. Barry Lyndon. I would never have forced him to be Barry Lyndon. No, thank you. Although I think he would have been better than Ryan O'Neill. I'm also not really yeah, sold Ryan on Ryan O'Neill, I was not, he was doing nothing for me. Yeah. Here's a question. Who is he in Jaws? I Hooper, think he's probably. Yeah. 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 I don't know that he can play a salty sea dog. No, he was not be Robert Shaw. The question is, is he Roy Scheider or Richard <laughs> Dreyfus? Yeah. I think he's Dreyfus. There's more humor to him. Yeah. Like there is with Dreyfus. Scheider's very serious. A lot of options. bearing the weight of killing that little boy. Oh, it's horrifying. Poor Brody having to overcome his fear of the sea. Yeah. Oh, my God. instinct with this, as much as I don't necessarily want to sub him out, is to put Jake in Dog Day Afternoon. So I think he'd be great. Yeah. He'd be great. Okay, I'm on board. Jake Gyllenhaal, one more for the books. To conclude, do you see yourself coming back to any of these films? Yeah, I could see myself watching Dog Day Afternoon again. 
I don't know that I'm going to watch One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest again anytime soon. It's kind of, it is kind of heavy. <laughs> it's heavy. It's definitely of, heavy. Of the three, it's the heaviest. It, especially if I come across another revival where they're showing on the big screen, I would go see Jaws again. Uh, oh, yeah. Any day. Screen. If anybody knows of a live movie theater screening of Jaws, send it our way because we will be there. And of course, yeah, I'm going to watch Monty Python on the Holy Grail again at some point. What are they doing? I'd watch Rocky Horror again, too. So a lot of these I would come oh, yeah. back to. And I mean, I might rewatch One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in my life. Sure. But maybe I'll wait another decade like I did this yeah. time. <laughs> so yeah, tons of rewatchable stuff. I am still thinking about potentially rewatching Nashville, though. It's such a huge commitment. But I really feel like maybe there's more to glean from it. I don't know. We'll I'll All right, consider let me know. Keep us updated. <laughs> but I think a lot of things are rewatchable. Have we learned anything new about what makes a best picture? I think Jaws, us picking Jaws definitely plays into the, like, cultural relevance thing. Though we have definitely said, like, critical acclaim and or cultural relevance themselves cannot make a best picture. But we're definitely not saying that about Jaws. No, I just, it's, it. It's a wonderful It's everything. (laughs) It's wonderful. Really what we've learned is what makes the best picture is Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Steven Spielberg does make a best picture. We'll I think we're going to discover that over and over again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what makes the best picture? Steven Spielberg. That's great. That's like. Does your movie have Steven Spielberg? No, well, then it's not a best picture. I know what you're saying. Sorry. Isn't the question who makes the best picture? No, 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 no. I think that's what I want to do is try to distill through this journey what the elements of a Steven Spielberg picture are, because I really think we're going to be seeing a lot of those elements in our other best picture choices. Mm. What makes yeah. a best picture? Steven Spielberg. <laughs> the ingredients of a Steven Spielberg. A little, just a dash of Spielberg. So that's Good my stuff. opinion of what we've learned. Just two Spielberg episodes in and I'm already all in. Back to our patterns. Angry white guys. Oh, boy, do we have one of those. R.P. McMurphy. (laughs) R.P. McMurphy. Interestingly, I would say Barry Lyndon is kind of an angry white guy. Yeah, he sucks. Yeah, I don't like him. (laughs) I don't like him at all. (laughs) It was so crazy. It took forever for the woman who plays his wife to have any lines, and she barely has any lines. And I was like, is she going to have any lines? That would have been like a statement in itself (laughs) if he had this wife that he married for her money and she never spoke. Biopics, we don't have any traditional biopics, but Barry Lyndon is very much in the form of a biopic. It feels it structured. It's a fictional character. Like a it is a guy and things happen to him over the course of his life and then he dies. <laughs> and also to revisit our original ideas discussion, things that are not based on existing IP, books, real stories, other movies, remakes of movies, we've mm-hmm. had some of those. The only one that fits that mold here is Nashville. Yeah. Everything else was based either on a real event or books. So fascinating. That's it. What are we discussing next time? Next time we are discussing the 76 Academy Awards or the films of 2003. The nominees were Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King, Lost in Translation, Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, Mystic River, and Sea Biscuit. A lot of colons this year. <laughs> so many colons. The year of the colon. How many of these have you seen? I have seen one of these movies. I have seen three of these movies. Oh, you were One of yours? them 
spoiler alert, Seabiscuit. I saw when it came out and not since, so I remember extremely little about it. All right, well, you'll watch it again. It'll be fine. Okay, very excited for that. In the meantime, with comments, questions, concerns, hot takes, Really, what all we're asking for is hot takes. You can reach out to us at oscarswrongpod at gmail.com and on Twitter and letterboxed at oscarswrongpod. New episodes of the pod come out every other Friday at 6 o'clock Eastern, wherever you get your podcasts. Bye.